When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. How you doing, everyone? I'm Russ Salzberg, and I want you all to listen up and get a load of this. Blood Brothers, the fatal friendship between Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X, is one of the most intense and riveting books I have ever read. It's a tell-it-all, tell-it-like-it-is, no-holds-barred story of two very polarizing figures of the 20th century in this country, in the 60s in particular. And today... I'm lucky enough to speak with one of the co-authors of this tremendous piece of work. So like I said, listen up, because you're really going to want to get a load of this. All right, folks. Randy Roberts is a distinguished history professor at Purdue University. He's also a brilliant author, having written books on, I mean, iconic figures. Jack Johnson, Jack Dempsey, Joe Lewis, Bear Bryant, Oscar Robertson, Mickey Mantle, and the Duke, John Wayne, just to name a few. He's also authored books on the Vietnam War, the Alamo, college basketball, uh, and, uh, and West Point football. And he was just named the winner of the A.J. Liebling Award for Outstanding Boxing Writing. And trust me, if you read Blood Brothers, The Fatal Friendship Between Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X, You'll understand why. So without any further ado, let's welcome in Randy Roberts. Randy, thanks so much for joining me here today. Uh, happy to be there. Well, I, I got to tell you, I, I read this book a few years ago, and when I did the first time, I was just mesmerized, in particular by the details that, that you had in it. So uh, let me just ask you this to get us going. When you set out to write the book, what was your goal? Uh, I wrote it with Johnny Smith, and we thought that that the, the, the story that hadn't been told fully yet was how this guy Cassius Clay, the Louisville Lip, became Muhammad Ali, you know, and and the role that Malcolm X played in the story. And so, what we wanted to do is tell this kind of what we thought was really an explosive story. I mean, it's it 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 has 
it has it 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 fits in with Macbeth. I mean, it has deceit, it has violence, it has it has people being used as pawns. It has all sorts of different dimensions to it. We wanted to tell that story. We wanted to tell a sports story. You know how how did this guy becomes heavyweight champion of the world? But we wanted to tell the political and social story as well. Well, I, I to me, what got me was the little when I say intricate details, and there's stuff. Listen, I've been in the sports business a long time, uh, been a sportscaster, you know, going on thirty six years. But more than that, uh, you know, you grew up with this, and there were things in it where there was speculation but this was not speculation you know what you prove it to be as fact and uh, i would say this with his stance on a draft alley and, and you know this he was viewed as a hero and to many he still is but when people read blood brothers uh you know i'd have to call him an accidental hero because he didn't mean to be a hero. Later on, listen, he, he, you can say he carried the uh, baton, but he was, as I say, in particular regarding the uh, draft and his stance, he was an accidental hero. Is that fair to say? I think so. You know, I think, you know, as, as somebody one time said, the arc of history tips towards social justice. Uh, and, and, and Clay, at that time, or Muhammad Ali, was kind of ahead of the curve. And so he was a little bit further ahead than most Americans were. Yes, young students, uh, males of the Vietnam age, a lot of them agreed with it because there were a lot of guys that didn't want to go to Vietnam, that didn't, you know, no guy wanted to be the last person killed in Vietnam. You and, and so, me both, you and me both. <laughs> exactly. So there was a lot of people that supported that. But there were a whole lot more that opposed that position, that that saw him as as un-American, as unpatriotic, and of course he was a he was a member of the Nation of Islam that was already viewed as kind of an un-American, anti-white, uh, hate organization. I'm not saying it was all those things, but that was the early view of the Nation of Islam. No, without question, and you. This just jumped out of the page to me. I am telling you, when, when I use the term "riveting" to do, to describe it, it, it was like I w- and this is you know it's not like a novel um, of fiction. This is you know things that I think I I knew about, thought I knew about, and I'm reading it, and like I'm like you know bated breath. But you know, Ali that that. Scene, and I call it a scene where it's the night before the Zora Foley fight, and, and Sugar Ray Robinson knocks at his door because you know he's he senses that uh, Ali is not right, that he's nervous, that, that he's just not right, and um, Ali tells Sugar Ray Robinson, and, and I quote: "Elijah Muhammad told me I can't go into the army." I mean, he he said, I can't go. And and then you have something else by a writer by the name of Dave Kindred, uh, who he tells, I would have gotten out a long time ago, but you saw what they did to Malcolm X. I ain't going to end up like Malcolm X. So he was flat out afraid of the nation of Islam. Oh, I think I don't think there's any doubt about that. Certainly, I think later in life, uh, Muhammad Ali really regretted uh, what he did to Malcolm X, uh, you know, how he shut Malcolm X out of his life, how he said Malcolm X was worthy of death when Malcolm X uh, left the nation of Islam. 
but he had seen what had happened to other people who had left the Nation of Islam. I mean, Malcolm X wasn't the only one that was killed. Uh, there, there was a friend of his by the name of Amir who had one time worked in on his staff who was brutally beaten and died as you know shortly after he was beaten uh, by by members of the Nation of Islam. So you know there was a certain amount of fear. I think part of the reason that that Ali went with the Nation of Islam, and and just part of the reason, not Mm. the total reason, but part of the reason was that there was more to fear from the Nation of Islam than there was from Malcolm X. Uh, So on one level, he he feared the Nation of Islam. On another level, the Nation of Islam gave him uh, a spiritual home. It it, it gave him a, a family. It the idea of not mixing with with whites and not trying to enter into white communities i think was inbred into clay it was bred by his father and remember clay was only a year younger i think than uh, emmett till yes and, and and his father would tell him about emmett till about how many blacks were killed by whites that it was happening every day in louisville and so there was a you know he grew up with a certain amount of fear in his life you know it's hard to say it's it's, it's remarkable to think that here's a guy the greatest boxer in the world a heavyweight champion that he could be afraid of anything but he was I mean, the one place he wasn't afraid was in the boxing ring. No, you're right. The, 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 as they say in the, in the business, the squared circle. Um, but you also mention up, which you open up the garage door for me. You mention up, uh, you, know, you know, his father told him all the stories about the bad things that were done to, if you will, at the time, blacks. They weren't blacks at the time. They were Negroes and colored folk. But But also there is a thing that, that, well, I can't, we'll call him Cassius Clay because that's what he was growing up, that Cassius Clay grew up with. His father sounded like a bad guy, like, like a, a drunk, and used to beat his wife. And that had an effect on Ali, did it not, or on young Cassius? Oh, I, 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 there's no question about it. Uh, you know, his father was a, was a frustrated individual. He was, he was a really talented guy. You know, he, he, he was a painter, he was a singer, uh, you know, he had a good voice, I've heard him sing, you know, I've seen it worked of some of his paintings, it was very good. Um, you know, was it great? Probably not. Was he, could he have been a, a great singer? You know, probably not, who knows. But he felt, in his eyes, he was a great painter, hmm. he was a great singer, that it was, it was the white world that was keeping him down that were refusing to recognize his talents, that he could have been a, a, you know, a, a great artist. Now, this frustration sometimes spilled over into drinking too much. Uh, you know, I think he was a good father. He tried to be a good father. He, he was with the family the whole time. But there was a certain amount of frustration. And, you know, there was, and Ali's mother was just the sweetest woman in the world, and Ali just adored his mother. But there was friction occasionally between the mother and the father. Yes, no, you, you, you spell that out. Talk to me, if you will, uh, Randy, about how the relationship began between, well, then Cassius Clay and Malcolm X, you know, s- starting with, you know, like from the very beginning. Well, Cassius, when he was young, uh, before even 1960, even before the Olympics, back in 1959, 58 even, had started to show an interest in the nation of Islam. 
You know, the song that was done by Louis X, who was Louis Farrakhan, you know, uh, heaven, uh, what was as a black man's heaven is a white man's hell, black man's right. heaven is a white man's hell, or a white man's heaven is a black man's hell, excuse me. Right. Um, you know, he had listened to that record, he had memorized the record, he had listened to it hundreds of times. And so he was interested in the nation of Islam. And when he went down to Miami in 1960-61 to train under Louis, uh, under Angelo Dundee, uh, he, you know, he, he was in the black section of, of Miami, and he saw people selling Mohammed Speaks, their newspaper on the street corners. And one of the guys that sold Mohammed Speaks is a guy named Sam Saxon, who they called Captain Sam. He was a member of the Nation of Islam. And Clay met Captain Sam. And Captain Sam and other members of the Nation of Islam started to indoctrinate him, to tell him about the Nation of Islam, what, what their practices were, what their beliefs were, how they behaved, everything about it. And so Cassius, by 1961, he's already moving towards the Nation of Islam, that he's going to be a black Muslim. Well, one day in 1962, in June of 1962, Cassius and his brother Rudolph Rudy were up in Louisville, and uh, Sam Saxon gave him a call and said, look, there's a big Muslim get-together in Detroit. Uh, Malcolm X is going to be there. Why don't I come by? I'm going to drive up. I'll pick you guys up in Louisville. We'll drive up to De Detroit, and you can meet Malcolm X. And sure enough, that's what happened. And so, <coughs> excuse me, in, the, in the June of 1962, they go into a luncheonette, a Muslim luncheonette, and there is Malcolm X. Malcolm sitting watching the door. He, you know, he's like an old western. He always wanted to see who was coming in. He didn't want anyone coming up behind him for good and, reason. Yeah, for good reason is right. And so he sees him, and Captain Sam goes up, and Cassius puts out his hand and says, "Hello, I'm Cassius Clay." And Malcolm shakes it. You know, Cassius thought everybody in the world knew who Cassius Clay was by that time. Malcolm had no idea who he was. He didn't follow sports. But he saw something in Cassius Clay. He saw the swagger, which Malcolm had, too. He saw the confidence, the air of confidence that Malcolm had, too. In a way, he almost saw a doppelganger, or a reflection of himself. And he saw that immediately that this was a different type of recruit for the Nation of Islam. Because the Nation of Islam recruited a great deal from prisons in America and from the ghettos in America. But here's a guy who's already a success. Yeah, I, yet he's interested. I I felt from reading your book that while Malcolm X knew, listen, uh, the, obviously they wanted to recruit people. I get that. Every you know, all religious groups do that. But Malcolm, I felt didn't want you know use. Muhammad Ali. I mean, I felt that Malcolm X genuinely cared about, uh, well, Cassius Clay at the time. And, and there was a relationship and a bond and a friendship. Whereas I felt that Elijah Muhammad and the Nation of Islam clearly were using uh, at Muhammad Ali. Fair to say? I think that's, that's fair to say to, as far as it goes. Mm. I think that Malcolm probably when Malcolm was getting ready to break from the Nation of Islam, when the Nation of Islam was getting ready to break from Malcolm, when they clearly, ideologically, were going in two different directions. And Malcolm was contemplating starting his own organization, 
which he will do at first with um, Muslim uh, Incorporated. Um, you know, when Malcolm was thinking of going that way, he clearly wanted Clay Alley to come into the organization with him. That that he that Ali would become a prime recruiter for his organization. So in in a way, I think both the Nation of Islam and Malcolm X wanted wanted I I'll say to use uh, Cassius Clay. That Cassius Clay is a pawn, but yet Cassius is getting something out of it too. He's getting confidence. Remember, Malcolm X will go into the, into the convention center, uh, into the locker room before Cassius Clay fought Sonny Liston, and he'll pray with Cassius Clay. And he'll, he convinces Cassius Clay that, that, that Allah had not brought Cassius Clay this far to allow him to lose. And so Cassius was taking sustenance, was taking confidence, was it was it was taking this the sense that he was invincible from the nation of islam and from malcolm x now we might say that cassius had to fight to fight but still if 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 someplace he's getting belief remember he's a he's an underdog in that fight sonny liston's considered an unde- unbeatable opponent but yet to have the confidence that he could do it because it was all part of Allah's will, Allah's the unwilling of the, the, the message that he was bringing, that this was very important to him. Yeah, I, I, I felt, I had done a lot of reading um, over the years about Malcolm X, so I, I felt this way even before reading Blood Brothers, but after reading Blood Brothers, it just reinforced my feeling. I don't think history has been if you will, fair to Malcolm X. He was very bright, I think very misunderstood. He was not a hate monger, which many, especially in white America, would believe. There's no doubt about it. Now, Malcolm came out of prison. Malcolm felt that he had been, that prison is is what, uh, you know, when he was in prison, that he was going to be in there for a long time probably end up back had it not been for the Nation of Islam. He discovered the Nation of Islam when he was in prison in, uh, in Massachusetts. And when he got out in 52, he had been in for about six and a half years. When he got out in 52, he went straight to the Nation of Islam, and he will become their major recruiter, their major proselytizer. He will start help start mosques in different cities. He will become the head of the mosque in New York, which is Mosque Number Seven, which is the most important Nation of Islam mosque, and and and, and so he credits Elijah Muhammad with his success, with his life, and he preached the doctrine of separation of races, of the doctrine of uh, the white devil, the blue-eyed devil that was part of the Nation of Islam's creed, but. At, and it's a complete separation of the white race and the black race and not participation in the civil rights movement. But as he moves forward, as he goes on a hajj, he starts to see that as he becomes very involved in a, in a Muslim faith, true in a Sunni Muslim faith, mm-hmm. that, that there isn't all just white and black, that there are some bad white actors, there's some good white actors, that the civil rights movement had some ideas. And so he starts to move away from the creed of the nation of Islam and, and towards a more orthodox Muslim beliefs. 
and 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 he wants to participate in civil rights. Yeah, and a, a, a factor also. I mean, all the things you say is dead on. But a, a factor also was, you know, he found the hypocrisy of Elijah Muhammad getting various women pregnant. You know, th- this was not how, uh, if you will, a good Muslim, you know, was supposed to act. So, so they end up splitting Malcolm and um, Malcolm X and the Nation of Islam. Now, the the stuff leading up to his death. I, I mean, they firebombed his house with his wife and four little girls in it. And, and um, you know, I don't want to say that Malcolm had a death wish, but I think he just resigned himself to the fact that the nation of Islam was going to kill him, and there was nothing he could do about it. No, he, he absolutely believed that. He told reporters constantly in the weeks before he died, uh, you know, I'm a dead man walking, you know, that I, I will be killed. Uh, you know, somebody's going to kill me. Now, by this time... You have a, an organization in, called BOSS in New York. It was out of the police department of special services. Uh, you know, they're investigating him. The FBI is following him. They're investigating him. You know, the Nation of Islam is at him. You know, as far as Malcolm is concerned, it's not a question of if he's going to be killed. He knows he's going to be killed. Mm. The question for him is, Who's going to kill him? You know, what organization? He feels that, you know, there's a, there's a lot of powerful organizations out there. Uh, you know, he had no trust for the United States government or the FBI or the CIA that somebody is out to kill him. Yeah, I, I, I'll tell you what really sickened me, as I just said to you before, they, they didn't just firebomb his house. But they firebombed his house with his wife and four little girls in it. And, and you know, when you think about it, they did this. Uh, and it was the Nation of Islam. They, they did this. And they did it five months after the tragedy down in Birmingham with the 16th Street, you know, Baptist Church where those little girls were killed. So, I, I mean, it was one thing from Clanton people to do it. But then here, here is a, a black organization, if you will, uh, the Nation of Islam, with his wife. And, you know, I'm not condoning trying to kill a human being, but this wasn't just Malcolm. I mean, his wife and, and, and children could have gotten it as well. Yeah, they could have. And, you know, we don't know who was really. I mean, we, we know who did uh, the murder of Malcolm X. You know, we're pretty sure we know that now. We certainly, uh, you know, one of the people who was convicted was definitely guilty because he was shot at the scene. Uh, two other ones who were convicted were most likely not guilty. And you know, there's this just an expose uh, documentary on those on that that killing. Uh, the the one person we do know turned in the other people. That, that supposedly were involved in it, but nothing ever happened. Isn't that, what is that, is that Talmadge X? Uh, Talmadge X. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Talmadge, Talmadge Hire was the guy's name. Uh, we, you know, we know that Hare was involved in it. Uh, but we don't know who was behind it. You know, we, we, we really don't. We don't know if he, if he was following orders from the Nation of Islam, if he just assumed that this is what the Nation of Islam wanted. You know, there's a lot of murky things about that uh you know what the police were doing that you know there was nobody there to really guard malcolm x you know that the police were across the street 
uh, you know, the FBI certainly had closed their foul on Malcolm X right afterwards. So there is a bunch that we don't know about that assassination uh, and, and that we'll never know. I, quite I, I, I will tell you th- that reading that and that, that's when I was holding my breath because like I'm saying, I know he's getting killed, but the way it's written, it, it, it was it was masterful. I'm like, oh, my God, this is going to happen. But there was so many things that shocked me. You know, a I said that he had resigned himself to the fact that he was going to be killed because he didn't have a ton of people uh, guarding. Uh, he he told his people, his security people, that no, you can't check. This was at the Audubon Ballroom in Manhattan. You can't check people, search people, because I don't want them to feel unsafe, which, let them rest in peace. To me, that was a cockeyed line of thinking. And then you also mentioned there was one cop outside, and and when you when I saw this in your book, there were like something like a dozen policemen in inside the hospital doors across the street. Uh, something's no, something's not kosher here. Yes, someone and the police had. There were all sorts of informants for the FBI and the police inside the Nation of Islam organization, and so there was a certain. I don't say there's a coordination between the two, but they knew what was going on. You know, something was happening here, and you know, and Malcolm. He's trying to build an organization. He's trying to build his African American, you know, or organization of African American unity, um, and and he doesn't want to frisk people. I mean, how do you try to build a uh, an organization where every time you have a meeting, everybody's going to be frisked at the door? I mean, that's going to take a lot of time. Nobody's going to want to come to it. They're going to be afraid. Why, why are you frisking us? I mean, how many people have guns? And so, it it it, it created a, a situation where, like he said. I'm going to be killed. I know that's going to happen. And, you know, he told reporters when he would when he would be on TV, said it on TV. We have that t- on tape at a number of places, and he just knew it was inevitable. It was almost as if he was going to be a martyr to the cause. Yeah, no, uh, that's that's a good way of putting it. It, it was uh, it, it was quite something, you know, to read, and and then uh, you know one of the things that Ali says, you know, later on in his life. One of his biggest regrets was turning his back on Malcolm X. Yeah, you know, you can see one of the things we were interested in is how does Cassius Clay become, as I said before, Muhammad Ali? And we see a really a kind of a transition that you know you you begin with this guy named Cassius Marcellus Clay. He loved his name. He would say it over and over again, and he kind of comes to the America's attention at the Rome Olympics in 1960 where he wins the gold medal in the light heavyweight division. And he, he's almost the, the, the crown prince of the Olympic Village. He's trading pins with everybody. He's talking with everybody. He, and he, he defends America. When some Russian reporter asks him about you know, race in America and the problems of being black in America, he says, you know, don't worry, Russian. We've got some good people working on that. It may be hard for me to get a... To something to eat some places in America, but but we're solving our racial problem. Mm. Then he goes from that, and he becomes another character that we remember from the early 60s, which goes by the Louisville Lip. You know, he sees 
gorgeous George one time. He's, he's, he's out in Las Vegas. And he's going to fight a guy named Duke Sebadon. And he's on the radio. And Gorgeous George is on the radio, too, with this one reporter, because they're both going to, uh, they have matches. And the reporter asks Cassius Clay, how are you going to do, Cassius? And he's confident. Cassius says, oh, don't worry about it. I'm going to do well. I'm going to win. And then the reporter turns to, um, to, to Gorgeous George and says, how are you going to do? And Gorgeous George, a wrestler, famous wrestler right. from the time, says, oh, I'm going to kill the guy. I'm going to rip off his arm. I'm going to take off his head. If I lose, I'll crawl across the ring in my knees. I'll, I'll, you know, I'll kiss his feet. But that's not going to happen because I'm the greatest. I'm the best that ever lived. And Cassius is watching this, and he's saying, whoa, I want to go to that match. This guy's got a, you know, he's got a good act going. And right after that, you know, we see Cassius Clay becomes a Louisville lip. He's predicting, I'm the greatest, I'm going to be champion, the youngest champion ever, I can't be beat, there's never been anybody better. Then he goes to another transition, and he becomes, really, before he becomes Muhammad Ali, he becomes Cassius X. And this is a, a nation, belongs to the nation of Islam, a follower of Malcolm X. You know, he gives up his last name, which, and he loved his name. He gives up Marcellus Clay. And then the final transition is when Elijah Muhammad says, I'm giving him a new name. I'm calling him Muhammad Ali. As long as he follows our faith, as long as he follows me, Elijah Muhammad, then he will always be Muhammad Ali from here on, worthy of all highest praise, uh, as it's translated. Mm. So, you know, there's really four figures in, in, in this, and he'll keep evolving, but in the story I'm telling, it's it's the four figures. Yeah, it, it, what also struck me in the book, and, and this is something that I, I had not, I had never read before, um, he, uh, when I say he, Elijah Muhammad, sends Malcolm X to Atlanta to speak, to meet this clandestine meeting with the Ku Klux Klan because Elijah Muhammad wanted to buy uh, land uh, in the Atlanta area. I don't know if it was from the Ku Klux Klan, and he wanted to know if it was going to be okay because we have the same feelings you have. Yeah. We, we want to be separate, and you guys want to be separate. I, I found that unbelievable. Yeah, it's... It, it's it's truth is stranger than fiction. Sometimes it's it's kind of remarkable that you know that uh, that Elijah Muhammad would think, well, you know, you're a separatist organization. We have no problems with that. Uh, we're a separatist organization. You know, one of the things that Malcolm X used to say, and Elijah Muhammad would say, and of course Clay became famous for saying it. Uh, he even talked about it after he defeated Sonny Liston the next day in his press conference. He said, "Look, in in nature." Bluebirds are with bluebirds, and blackbirds are with blackbirds, and tigers are with tigers, and lions are with lions. You know, we believe in the same thing. You know, we we believe in the separation. We believe that's the natural order of things. And uh, of course, the, the meeting between the Klan and Malcolm X goes nowhere. Uh, you know, there's no, there's not a whole lot of trust on either side. <laughs> no, I, I would think not. What do you think now? I, I you know. It, the, the timing is kind of interesting that here I have I, I have you on with me and I'm, I'm so pleased th- that you are here, Randy. But uh, what do you think of 
this no, new business because of this recent documentary uh, on Netflix that it, it's coming out that they're going to possibly reinvestigate or look into reinvestigating the death of Malcolm X? Well, I, I, I didn't know how much they're going to look into the death. I knew that they were investigating and trying to go for a pardon with the, with the one person who's left, still alive who was convicted and served a lot of years, right. 20-some years, um, for, for the death. I didn't know they were going to look into the death of Malcolm X. So that, that, that's new information. Well, when I say look into the just uh, yeah, the whole circumstances of who did what, and yeah, apparently that, that is the case. It, it, it's quite remarkable uh, to me. You, you know, I'm, you, you're in this, um, and I, I had um, uh, Dick Cavett on with me uh, a couple of weeks ago here. Uh, you know, and when I saw you in, it, there's the new uh, documentary, Ali uh, Cavett, Tale of the Tapes. And sure enough, when I saw you in there, and as soon as I saw the name, I says, that's the guy who wrote <laughs> Blood Brothers. I, I said, I had to get you. But what what I got out of that, and we all know that Ali was, was smart, but he sat down with Cavett 14 times on that show and I have never seen him so – the button – his on button was off. He was just so relaxed and, 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 and warm and even fuzzy. And he also came on with Cavett three times in particular – after each one, you know, he loses to Frazier, he loses to Norton, he loses to Spinks, and he comes on not making excuses after each one. Oh, I didn't know that. I have not seen that documentary. Oh, oh Randy, you're not doing justice to yourself. You come across excellent in it, but you must see it. I, I It was so well done. And, and you see a guy, I'm telling you, you can see the warmth in, in Muhammad Ali to... Cavett that I had never seen before, and and he flat out looks at him and says, "Dick, you're my main man." Cavett was a great interview. Oh, the best I because, thought. Because uh, Cavett came across as he's just talking to you, and he cares about you. He had a kind of a, a I'll call it a folksiness about him. Uh, you know, it was a kind of an intellectual folkishness, but I mean, he was a really good guy, and he was always able to bring out the best in people. I saw him talk to Brando and various other people, and you know, he was really good. I, I think the reason, and I had said this when I was talking to him, I credited to him, the reason he was such a good interviewer, he didn't do interviews. He conducted conversations, and because he conducted conversations, in particular, since we're talking about Ali, he was able to get things from Ali that that and other people that other people couldn't get. I, I want to say it now, even more so. It's on, it's on HBO, right? Y- yes, and you can get see it, watch it on demand. I'm telling you, Randy, and, and I'm not saying it blowing smoke. And rose petals at you. You came across very well. It was very informative. So I, I highly suggest that uh, you you take a look at it. Uh, oh, well. uh, another thing that I wanted to run by you, since we're here, I'm talking about Ali. You know, we've been talking about, and that's what the book's more so about than anything is the relationship between him and Malcolm X. But Angelo Dundee, his trainer, when you think about it, Angelo. I don't think there could have been a more perfect 
perfect guy to train him because Angelo wasn't ego-driven. He he was not the same personality of Ali, but he also knew this is what I do. I train fighters. I'm not interested in what you do with women. I'm not what you do. This was not just with Ali, with everybody, all, all his fighters. I'm not interested in what you do with re- women, with your religion, with your beliefs. I'm here to train you. And if you listen to me and I listen to you, we can do things. I, I, Angelo was the best. That you know, Not only did he know boxing as well as anybody, there's been some great trainers that know boxing, but Angelo never got involved in people's personal lives. You know, one time, I love the story, Angelo Dundee got on, on an elevator one time, and on the elevator with him was a guy by the name of Frankie Carbo. Yeah. <laughs> and Frankie Carbo was, was the mob leader yes. behind boxing. Okay, I mean, he could, for, for a decade, he controlled the sport, absolutely controlled the sport. And, and he was a member of the mob. And Angelo looked at him once, twice. He says, hey, I know you. And, and Frankie Carbo said, no, you don't know me, and I don't know you, and let's keep it that way. <laughs> I, I think that taught Angelo not to ask questions, okay, not to get involved, not to put his nose any place that his nose didn't belong. And consequently, you know, he got along well with Ali. You know, he didn't, he didn't, he wasn't upset by the Nation of Islam about Ali's practices, you know, maybe with his problems with women. He just didn't get involved with any of his fighters. But he also knew how to work with Ali. He knew that Ali, Cassius Clay, when he met him, didn't, you know, you couldn't really exactly tell him how to do anything. You know, that he thought he knew the right way of doing things. And so instead of telling Clay, do this or do that, he would sort of suggest it. Uh, Cassius would throw a punch in a certain way. And, and maybe it was the right way, maybe it wasn't the wrong way. But, but Angelo would say, God, I loved how you threw that punch. I mean, the way you brought that uppercut, the way you twisted your hand, I've never seen a heavyweight that could do that. And, you know, suddenly now Clay's thinking, well, I, 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 I'm doing something no other heavyweight's done. Maybe I've invented it. Right, and, right. And, and then, you know, for the next day, he'd be doing it 30, 40 times. And then it would become part of his repertoire. So it was like he would just pick up and he would just little suggestions to refine it. The yeah. other thing that he could do that was just great is he knew, had an infallible sense when a fighter was over the hill. When another fighter wasn't training too much, when he was cutting too much, but yet still had a good reputation. And early in Cassius Clay's career, he was matched against a number of fighters who, who had had world rankings. Besmanov, Midiff, uh, uh, Alejandro Levinarte. Uh, you know, fighters that had been in the top ten, certainly some of them in the top five, but they were now over the hill. Still had names, but they couldn't beat Ali. They, you know, oftentimes they were bleeders that Ali would cut. So he, he brought Ali up beautifully. The, the matches that Ali had, particularly before Sonny Liston, were just beautifully picked matches. He really only fights one fighter of any note before he fights Liston, and that's Doug Jones. Right. Henry Cooper, that he fights in London, is a bleeder. I mean, it's, it's, it, although Cooper knocks Clay down, it's, it's, Clay's going to win that fight. Yeah, no, I, I, I remember that. I, 
trying to remember. I think I was in the fifth or sixth grade or something when that happened. I, I also loved, there's one little point in, in the fifth, fifth Street gym. You have it in the book in, in Miami uh, where, um, you know, uh, Ang- uh, Angelo Dundee worked out of. And he had a lot of black fighters and, and, and white, you know, white, the, the whites, the Negroes and the Cuban, a lot of, had a lot of Cuban fighters. And, uh, but there was young Ali or young Cassius, you know, jabbering, you know, kind of the leader of the pack. And, uh, he'd walk by, uh, you know, the Cubans saying something. And then, uh, uh, Cubans would say there was one who would say, uh, Nino con Baca Grande. I wrote that down, which the baby has a big mouth. <laughs> the baby has a big mouth, exactly. <laughs> and right. and it wasn't said in resentment. They accepted him for the way he was. Oh, they liked him. Yeah, there were a number of Cuban fighters. What had happened is that, you know, only a few years before, Fidel Castro had come into power in Cuba and had barred uh, professional boxing. And so a number of the famous boxers left Cuba and moved to Miami and fought out of Miami. You know, people like Sugar Ramirez, who was a featherweight champion, defeated Davey Moore. Actually, Davey Moore died in a fight uh, against Sugar Ramirez. Uh, Louis Rodriguez, who fought, you know, in the kind of the Griffith era. Uh, yeah, Benny Kid Perret, who didn't train under Angelo, but it was another one who left Cuba. You know, the, some real great world champions were over sure. there. Most of them ended up with Angelo. Well, li- listen, uh, I, I don't think I don't think he could have done any better, certainly without his boxing career, in, in a boxing career, than with Angelo Dundee. They understood each other. And uh, listen, uh, it, it's a great story. And, and this Blood Brothers, folks, I highly recommend Blood Brothers, the fatal friendship between Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X. It's just a brilliant reading. But before I let you go, um, I'll, I'll do a little business for you. I, I was doing some research, and I understand you have uh, a, a new book out. What is, or it's, it, I shouldn't say it's out yet. It's coming out at the end of March. What is uh, the name of the book? The, the new book is called War Fever, Boston Baseball an American, a shadow of the Great War, and it's a, a story of three individuals. It, it's a it's story of how World War One impacted America, and so it deals with the greatest athlete of the era, a guy by the name of Babe Ruth that maybe you've heard of. Yeah, I know him. Who, because of the war, is switched from being a really good pitcher to the greatest hitter of all time and revolutionized the sports because of the war. And this is a guy that can speak German. Uh, you know, he's come from a German family in Baltimore, German-American family in Baltimore, and, and how the war impacts him. Another person is a guy by the name of Carl Mook, who is the conductor of the Boston Symphony Orchestra, who's German, from, and, and he, he gets accused of being a spy and what happens to him, and it deals with repression in America during the war. And the other one is a war story, and it deals with a guy, an unlikely hero by the name of Charles Whittlesey, who um, gets a command of a, of a battalion-sized force uh, in, 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 in Mousaragon Offensive, and goes through the worst hell that a soldier can go through. I mean, it's it's just it's 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 a harrowing story, and it's a story about survival and what happens to him when he comes home. And so it's uh, I, it all ends with a, a pandemic, which is the one we're getting ready to face here. I think coming up, uh, the Spanish influenza. So it was a it was a fun book to 
right, and I think it tells some good stories. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what. If, if I just knowing your attention to detail and Blood Brothers, uh, I'm going to make sure I see War read War Fever, and uh, hopefully uh, I'll be able to call you and get you back on here so we can can discuss that as well, Randy Roberts. I'd love to talk to you. It's been great talking with you, Russ. Randy, thank you so much. Again, Blood Brothers, The Fatal Friendship Between Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X. The book came out a few years ago, folks. I highly, if you have any interest in Muhammad Ali, and so many of us do, I highly recommend it. Uh, Just a tremendous read. Anyway, folks, that is a wrap right here, right now. I want to thank all of you for getting a load of this. Now I'd like to get a load of you. Let me know your thoughts on my conversation with Mr. Randy Roberts. You can tell me on Twitter at Russ Salzberg, on Facebook. You can always check out my website, russsalzberg.com. My thanks to Crash across the way. He takes such good care of me, a.k.a. Mike Caragliano. Thank you to my 77 WABC program director, Dave Labrosi, and his outstanding assistant, Matt Dahl. And last but certainly not least, a great big thank you to all you people out there, because without you people out there, I'd have nobody in here to be talking to. So until next time, it is I, Russ Salzberg, saying bye-bye, so long, and farewell. Until next time. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.